I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Up next on The Trade Guys, we'll talk U.S. shift on WTO e-commerce policy. We'll talk graphite and consumer spending for Halloween, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, first up, let's talk U.S. shift on the WTO e-commerce policy. I do feel a rant coming on, um, but why is the Biden administration ending its support for WTO proposals on data flows? Well, this is one of the great mysteries of Washington, at least today. But look, for the last, oh, 25 years or so, the United States has led the, the uh, discussion at the World Trade Organization and in other fora about how to deal with electronic commerce and the, the many challenges that come out of the high technology industry. It's only right and proper that the United States does this because it's an industry that is in many ways uniquely American and has a major effect on our economy. It's a driver of incredible innovation, not to mention taxable income if you're a member of the Senate Finance Committee. But it's really kind of the core business of, of the United States at this point, or at least one of the core businesses. And uh, it is in that environment, we have the experts, we have the knowledge of uh, as much as anyone does about where the technology is going. We ought to be leading negotiations in this area. But instead, the Biden administration claims to be ending their support for the proposals that are under negotiation at the WTO. The reason is is uh, is right out of the least developed country's book of talking points. They say they want policy space, which is, in, just let me stop for a minute because I, our audience needs to get the joke on this. But policy space is used in the same way that sustainability is or sustainable. Everybody said it sounds good. People think they know what it means. It doesn't really mean anything. Policy space is a new way to make excuses for not doing something. In the case of industrial tariffs, you have a country that has very high bound rates. So let's say the bindings with the WTO are 30%. But in order to run their economy, they have applied rates at 10%. When there's a tariff-cutting proposal with the WTO, you ought to start from the, the actual applied rates because then you get real liberalization. But the countries with the high tariffs say, oh, no, we need the policy space. That additional 20% of tariffs may come in handy someday when we want to squeeze somebody. So we need it for our policy reasons. And everybody nods their head politely instead of saying, well, that's a bunch of baloney. In any case, this is baloney. We've got uh, you know a lot of allies of the administration who think this is a great idea. Uh, India has come out in favor of it. So uh, you know, in all cases, they seem to just be aligned against big tech. But unfortunately, you can't have network effects without a network. Right? And if you're going to have a network, it's got to be big enough to make things happen. So look, this is... It looks to me, and Bill may, may have different views, but looks to me to like just bad judgment. I, last week, we talked about the COVID uh, vaccine and the TRIPS waiver on the COVID vaccine, how it solved a political problem, but didn't actually solve a real problem. As it were, it was, it was addressing the wrong issue. In this case, I think it solves a political problem for the administration. 
Senator Warren and some of their important uh, supporters in the Congress are in favor of this policy space and in favor of of letting other people regulate the internet economy. Uh, but I think they're solving that political problem by creating material harm to the U.S. economy is really bad judgment. So I can't find a good thing about this. There's no way Bill's going to find anything good about this. I'm, I'm so appalled. I'm speechless. I mean, APEP, the Latin American counterpart, is a missed opportunity. This one is going to do actual harm, and it's going to do actual harm to American companies. It seems to me the most fundamental mission of USGR ought to be to stand up for our guys, you know, and this is kneecapping them. This What USGR is talking about doing is abandoning, as Scott said, the position that we've taken for decades, an open inter- internet, free flow of information, and the prohibition on requirements to localize data, which is absolutely essential for our financial services sector if it wants to promote international banking, international insurance, and international financial transactions. And to say you're going to pull back and maybe we're not going to support that, that's the Chinese position. That's the Indian position. You know, it's a South African position. These are the people that we've been fighting for 30 years. Uh, and all of a sudden now we're going to take their side. The thing that bothers me about it is we're taking their side at the expense of our guys. You know, as Scott said, we are the leader, world's leaders in digital trade, digital technology, the digital companies that are the instruments of this. And they're the ones that that the Democratic left, and I agree with Scott, it's like a lot of things this administration does, it's political. You know, there's a war on big tech. This is the new new villain, if you will. They sort of joined CEOs and multinational corporations in the new axis of evil. Big tech, which means Facebook, Meta, I guess I should say, Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. These are the companies that have, first of all, you know, have established American technology and American products all over the world. They're a major instrument of American soft power. You know, governments use these channels. Governments use Facebook. There are some governments that use Facebook as their official channel for making official announcements to the public. The more we can get American technologies embedded globally, the better off we are, not just because our companies make money, which they do, which I think is a good thing, and it supports a lot of jobs here in the in the United States. Remember, you know, despite the Biden administration's obsession with manufacturing, our economy is about seventy five percent services, and what we're talking about here is services. So, going to be costing jobs. We're producing internet fragmentation, which I thought was going to be something that we would try to do away with, uh, try to discourage in the interest of a more open, free flow of information world where I think everybody benefits. What the administration is doing is it's it doesn't make any economic sense. It's bad for our companies. It's bad for free speech. It's bad for uh, open dialogue. It's bad for American soft power. And it plays into the hands of the Chinese and the Indians. I just don't understand it. It's appalling. Well, perhaps that it, we, we ought to credit the, the opponents, the people who, who, who believe that American technology is not that great. And let's take away their iPhones and MacBooks and present them with the French Minitel, which was the first internet back in 1980. Uh, They'll love it. About all it does is look up names in a phone book, but it'll be fine for you if that's what you want. If if you're really that opposed to American innovation, the Minitel is is your window to the world. Have a nice day. Well, have a nice day. Is that a policy solution? (laughs) Well, 
sometimes people need to experience the consequences of their own actions. I and see. that that seldom happens with uh, either, either the activist left or the activist right. No doubt. The policy solutions are never really enacted. Doesn't happen very often in Washington, unfortunately. This is symptomatic of a, a larger trend. You know, big tech is a villain, is as Scott uh, suggested just a moment ago. Is this an argument of the left? It's also an argument of the right. And as we've seen often in trade, that we've talked about on on the podcast uh, on and off, is one of the characteristics of the trade debate in the United States is the left and the right ganging up and shooting at the center. And here we are, Scott and, and I, I think, trying, and Andrew, honorary trade guy, trying to maintain the center, and it's getting harder yep, and harder. Yep. Look, across the bargaining table, every every economy that the USTR negotiates with is looking after their own economic interests. Yep. When USTR stops looking after American economic interests, they've got the wrong talking points. They've got the wrong Nobody bargaining Nobody else notion. is going to look after our interests. But that's for sure. Amen. And- what you said about the center bill, I mean, we could say that about a whole host of issues, but this one, you know, a, again, yet another example of the center not being able to hold because of people on either side going pretty uh, hard right and hard left. Yeah, I'm depressed. Well, let's move on to a happy topic, Chinese graphite controls. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah they, that'll we're going to get to Halloween eventually, and that's <laughs> a, a happy topic. topic. Can you give us some context behind China's controls and why the PRC released this new rule now? Well, I think it was, um, they never admitted it publicly, but I think they, they have admitted it privately. It, it's in the category of gallium and germanium, which we talked about a couple of months ago. It's, it's basically, it's Chinese retaliation for American uh, export controls. It's turned out, I think, in the gallium and geranium case to be less than what it was advertised to be. And that may well happen with graphite as well. With graphite, for reasons I'll get to in a minute, is a little bit different anyway. But people tend to forget when you're imposing export controls, it's really a two-part process. Part one is deciding to control the item. But if you decide to control the item, what that means is if you want to export it, you have to get a license. If the government gives you a license, in other words, if the government says yes, then you're good to go. So I think there's this assumption sometimes in the media that, oh, this is being put under controls. That means there's not going to be any of it exported. And that, by and large, is not true. I mean, it's not true on the American side. We approve licenses for companies that are on the entity list, the list of, of I guess, bad companies, for lack of a better term. And the word coming from China is that licenses for gallium and germanium are being approved, notwithstanding the fact that, that you know, they were placed under controls a while back. Graphite is a little bit different in the sense that it's, first of all, there's a lot of applications for graphite. You know, if anybody uses a pencil anymore, I'm not sure that anybody does. But if you use a pencil, that's graphite. But we're talking about high-end graphite, which uh, in particular, the graphite that's used in battery, electric vehicle battery anodes, where it's, it counts as a critical mineral. Fortunately for us, this is not a case where China supplies all of the world's graphite. About one-third of our graphite comes from China. So they're the single biggest source, but substantially other sources include Mexico and other places with whom we have, uh, with which we have good relations. So it's not like we're necessarily going to be we're going to be caught short. It's not a material where there's global shortages. There are other countries, including uh, Brazil and some other countries uh, in Latin America, where there are 
graphite capabilities or graphite deposits. The issue, as with all of these minerals, is less where is it and how do we find it, but where do we process it? And that will be an issue here as well. But I think it was intended to send, once again, to send a signal to the United States that the Chinese are unhappy with our policies. I think the effect of this will be the same as Gallium and Germanium. It will be inconvenient, but not fatal. I think that's right. Look, let's, let's take a look at graphite per se, which is carbon. Well, you think carbon is plentiful, and it is, but carbon bonds with everything. So a lot of carbon gets stuck to other things very quickly. In fact, organic chemistry is all about carbon chemistry. That's the exclusive province of carbon chemistry. So there's a lot of things that carbon binds to. Therefore, pure graphite is not easy to find. There, you can mine it. You can also uh, create it. You can process it synthetically. But either one takes work. Mining it and cleaning it up, as Bill points out, requires effort. Processing is, is not easy. And likewise, uh, synthetic graphite, you need a lot of hydrocarbons to process. And it's got some downsides in terms of dealing with the uh, byproducts and everything else. So for me, this is not about so much about graphite as it is about the radical change that battery-powered vehicles represent and the fact that it's there are many, many complex threads in producing and distributing and operating a fleet of electric vehicles, and those complexities wrap around each other. So these complex systems are going to continue to show problems like this. Now, the story actually goes back about 30 years when the United States and other uh, developed economies decided that it would be a good idea to let the Chinese dig up their countryside instead of us digging up our countryside. I point that out because the United States and China have roughly the same land area. So we have the same share of the Earth's crust. 40% of U.S. land by acreage is owned by either a federal or state government. So there's a lot of land out there, okay? And we're choosing not to extract resources from it. And instead, we let China do the dirty work for us. Well, that gives them, when it comes time to allocate short supplies of commodities that are extracted like that, they're the home team. We're the visiting team. And we'll have to deal with that. We'll have to think about how that how that works into the future. And so when, when it comes to things you have to dig up, we've got some problems. Now, Bill points also that commodity traders will always tell you that high prices lead to low prices. And graphite, if it's in short supply, will get expensive. People will either find substitutes or find additional supplies or they'll increase uh, synthetic production. So the, in many ways, the, the shortage that appears now will solve itself in one way or another as commodity markets almost always do. But for me, the, there's this complexity story, this, this interaction of complex systems, whether it's battery, battery production or charging stations or uh, you name it. We're recreating a, an industry here, and but it's more than a production industry. It's a, it is a fleet of vehicles that operate the way people expect them to. Very complicated problems. We'll have a lot of, of these things surface as we live through it. You know, our viewer, Scott, our viewers can't see this, but Bill just slammed his graphite tennis racket into his desk, and it's not pretty. John McEnroe style, I, I imagine. Yeah. So <laughs> Scott made an important point when he used the term dirty work. I mean, one of the, the reason why we've been happy to have China do this is because it's dirty. It creates mm -hmm. a lot of dust and dirt, and it's environmentally 
dangerous. And so uh, all these mining things are dangerous. And we've been very happy for decades to have other people do that. And one of the things that is not being discussed in the United States yet, but will be, to, as the administration tries to bring some of this stuff back on shore, is this is, cl- this is a classic NIMBY problem. You know, not in yeah, my yeah. backyard. And somebody's going to say, oh, well, you know, let's build a graphite mine over there. And all the people that live over there within, you know, a 10-mile radius are going to say, not in my backyard. They're going to say, put it somewhere else. And then they'll sue because this is America and anybody can sue anybody for anything. And it'll take it a long time to get through the courts. You know, if you want to make something happen quickly uh, these days, we're not the place to go to do it. And the Chinese solve that problem. When you're an authoritarian state, you just, you come in and if there's people living on top of your graphite deposit, you just tear down their houses and move them. Hard cheese. Yep. Yeah, we don't do that. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if we start trying to do that. Well, so how should the United States and allies react to this rule since we are dependent? Well, my view is we should expect more of this, but not just uh, because China is retaliating for something. We are going to come across shortage after shortage, interruption after interruption because of the complexity of this. Somebody's got to think this whole thing through. And that's really the, the effort when, when, you're, when you're making a major policy commitment to a shift in an entire mode of transportation, you're going to have a ton of problems and you've got to be prepared to solve them and, and you've got to look at the thing, the thing holistically and very, in a very sophisticated way. And you have to understand that it takes time. Um, I mean, I sometimes think that, you know, the media thinks, oh, you know, they, they think tsunami, you know, in a year, all this, everything will be different and all these problems will be solved. These companies will respond and they'll build all this stuff. I was just at a conference this morning about critical minerals and, and energy and, and uh, Latin America, not my area of expertise, but it was the expertise of everybody else in the room. So I learned a lot. And there's a lot of graphite there, and there's a lot of other minerals there. Bolivia, Paraguay, and Chile are known as the lithium triangle. Because they've got like something like what, 70% of the world's supply in their salt flats there. But um, you know, when you start talking about mining, even there, even in Latin America, they're saying, you know, five to ten years to get a mine operational. This stuff, this doesn't happen quickly. And immense capital required. You know, yes. you, if you get the permits settled. Somebody got to come up with the money. It, it, this is not cheap. Never has been. It, it's it's also not cheap for the reason Scott said in the commodity market. I can't remember the name of it. The, the, I guess it's a lithium mine in in California, right near the Nevada line, has closed down twice. It's now on its third try, and the reason fundamentally was was economics. You know, they couldn't mine the stuff economically. They couldn't make enough money to keep mine going, basically. And uh, Scott's right. When there's a shortage, prices go up, people invest. And, you know, if you overinvest, overproduce, then prices go back down, people go broke. And this is a, yeah, this is not uncommon in commodities. And we have to think about that going forward in these areas as well. All right, guys, let's finish up today with a, actually a happy topic. Um, happy topic. About time. We've got yes. Halloween. Yes, Halloween indeed. Halloween spending has reached record. $12.2 billion, uh, as Dead. participation exceeds pre-pandemic levels. Uh, wow. How have trade and Halloween been historically linked? Well, look, Americans always 
find an excuse to commercialize a holiday and make it into a big party. Oh, yeah. I think it's it's just in it's in our DNA to do these things. You know what and, they call uh, Halloween in New Orleans? Tuesday. Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, Tuesday, but Halloween. <laughs> it's Halloween. Yeah. Sure. You gotta you gotta go bigger and better. All right. Just like Mardi Gras, which is supposed to be one day, Fat Tuesday. Okay. Last month. month. Yeah. <laughs> That's, but but look, we do it all the time. St. Patrick's Day, St. Val- St. Patrick and St. Valentine's were actual uh, Catholic saints right. uh, in, in the Roman Church. Cinco de Mayo was a was a sort of a minor remembrance in Mexico of a military defeat of the, over the French, and we turned it into a you know, reason to, to eat tacos and drink uh, Mexican beer. And to figure out. Uh, this is just what we've done to All Saints Day, another Christian holiday from from the past, and it's kind of hilarious. It is really an, an adult's opportunity to let it all. I'll go let your hair down and have fun. People are likely to be somebody else on Halloween. I think that's the, the, there's a there's a joy in there. That said, trade hits it a couple ways. First is that it trade makes Halloween more affordable for everybody. It makes everybody be able to throw a bigger party because we we import costumes and decorations and candy and all kinds of treats. The party's a lot cheaper because of availability of imports. So you have more fun for less money, thanks to trade. But more importantly, when you do engage in international trade, it's people and culture and ideas as well as just things. Uh, Halloween is spreading as a as an event, especially in Asia, where uh, if it's fun for the Americans, we can have that much fun too. So, uh, so I, I think all of this is part of our part of our globalized world. But uh, but also, you never want to forget the benefits of imports to consumers because they. You can have a good time for less money. Even uh, ingredients. I was just thinking we import, apparently we import about five times as much candy as we export. But if you think about it, even the candy that we make, we're talking uh, basically a lot of it is chocolate, which means cacao and uh, cocoa beans, which are not grown in the United States. So that's a product of trade. And we're talking sugar, which is grown in the United States, but not enough to meet uh, domestic demand. So we import a lot of sugar and, you know, even so even the stuff that we export, when I teach this stuff, I have, well, I do have a lecture on supply chains and there's a couple charts that everybody uses. There's an automobile supply chain, which is a wheel and axle assembly from a, a Chevy product with, and it's, you know, it's got little flags that show where, you, where each piece came from. And in the case of that one, they all came from either Canada or the United States, but like you know, seven different states and a bunch of different places in Ontario. And then I've got a Boeing aircraft supply chain, which is global stuff from all over the world. But just to show people about the breadth of these things, I also have a supply chain for Nutella. And I hope everybody out there, you know, appreciates Nutella. It's a wonderful thing to eat. Uh, This sort of chocolate hazelnut stuff. Uh, World headquarters of Nutella is in Italy. But uh, you know the ingredient. None of the the ingredients don't are not in Italy. The ingredients are hazelnuts, uh, which mostly come from Turkey, a palm oil, which comes from uh, Indonesia and a variety of places in Southeast Asia, sugar, which comes from multiple locations, and chocolate, which comes from uh, West Africa. So in a way, you think of it, you know, it's a it's sort of candy. It's a f- food product. You think this is simple. Well, you know, it's not simple. It's complicated. It's not as complicated as an airplane, you know, but it has its own supply chain. And, you know, if you start interdicting those parts or interrupting the flow with tariffs, or in the case of agriculture, 
sanitary and phytosanitary standards, you know, pretty soon people aren't going to get their Nutella. Who knew Nutella was so complex? I didn't. But I was fascinated to get this. So I thought <laughs> it was right. cool because, I mean, everybody understands, sort of intuitively gets it with, air, with airplanes and cars. I could probably do, I, yeah, I have another yeah. one on the iPhone. Uh, you could do that one too. But uh, when you start talking about Nutella, I mean, it kind of wakes people up and says, oh, yeah, you know, supply chains are everywhere. It's not just for complicated okay. manufacturing things. Uh, for sure. Well, guys, happy Halloween. I hope you give out a lot of candy to trick-or-treaters. Are you, are you going you, trick-or-treating, Andrew? I am not going trick-or-treating because my kids no longer are of that age. But I have are been you on, sure? I'm, as I'm sure you guys have. I am sure uh, the youngest is going to a party. The older two are also going to many parties. And, uh, you know, we'll be home giving out candy to the neighbors. So, you know, always fun. And I hope you guys have a good one. Well, my grandson, Elijah, is going as Super Mario. So, Oh, there you go. Okay. Photos to follow. And I, <laughs> I don't know exciting. what. Uh, I don't know what my grandson Matt's is going as, but I do remember while a lot of costumes are important, uh, the favorite costume we had for uh, my older son when he was eight, I guess, or seven, uh, was one we made ourselves. He went as a bunch of grapes. And basically what we did is we, we glued a large number of purple balloons to him. Uh, and it was a great concept, great costume. <laughs> oh, that, that's a good one. And cheap too. It was cheap. Right, it sure. was simple. And you could pop them at the end. Awesome. What could be better? All right, guys. Until next week. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.